seven of PBQ Slush Pile. We take more time than other editorial boards, but we stand behind our methodology, so much so that we're going to share our process with you through this podcast. Welcome to the editorial table. Uh, we have a couple of new things happening today. We have um, uh, a stand-in engineer, Ryan McDonald. So we're going to be going, hey, Ryan, what's the vote? Instead of, hey, Joe, what's the vote? And we have one of our interns with us today, Sarah Akit, and she's here to take notes and um, just, you know, be in awe of the wonder of podcasting in a general way. <laughs> So I'm here, as usual, in the studio in Philadelphia. I'm Kathleen Volkmiller, co-editor for more than 20 years with Marion Wren and um, director of the graduate program in publishing here at Drexel, among many other things. I have to put on many different hats around here, but it's all good. And um, with me in the studio is Tim Fitz. Hi, I'm Tim Fitz, <laughs> and I teach here at Drexel. I teach first-year writing. And I've been reading with the Painted Bride Quarterly for about three years now. And I write short stories mostly. And I have a novel coming out with Moonhawk Dongne Press, hopefully next month. And, um, and I have a new story coming out next month in a, in a YA journal called Yarn. Oh, that's cool. I didn't nice. know about that. Yeah. I'm glad there are YA journals. Yeah, I was a little hesitant because I wasn't really sure about that genre. But when I checked out their website, they get uh, they have a lot of readers. Yeah, and so it's uh, and I, so I thought I, uh, it'd be nice to explore. Yeah, I, I, it was a story selected for that, so I didn't write it specifically for a YA audience. I'm not really sure how to do that. They just said, "Yeah, this will work for them," mm -hmm. and so it was a story uh, based on a bunch of 14 year olds, anyway. Yeah, so cool. so yeah, that'll be fun. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Um, who else do we have out there? Abu Dhabi, why don't you go first? Hello, this is Marion Wren, and I'm glad to be well, although that sounded like a fantabulous conversation that you had. Um, I am sitting in my apartment in Abu Dhabi. It is 8 o'clock at night, um, and I am watching uh, like 30 people, 40 people, like leave the building across the street because they're leaving a lecture um, that had to do with the sort of evolving relationship of journalism and war in the 21st century. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm, I'm watching uh, a conference sort of be sort of, I don't know, like set free into the courtyard mm -hmm. across the way from my apartment. So that's where I am. <laughs> Very cool. Jason? This is Jason Schneiderman. I am in San Francisco today because I am doing a reading tomorrow night at Books, Inc. in the Castro for my new book, um, Primary Source. Woo! That's fun and different to be calling from San Francisco. It's nice out here. It's it's earlier. It's a lot earlier. Apparently, San Francisco is on an earlier time. <laughs> apparently. So, wait, it's eight in the morning. No, it's nine in the it's morning. It's nine in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad we caught you. Um, Miriam. I'm Miriam Heyer. I'm a senior editor of the Painted Bride Quarterly, and I am not anywhere that I'm usually, you know, that's out of my usual uh, life. I am still in Union Square in New York. <laughs> and uh, this morning, um, the only really exciting thing that happened to me was that 
even though I get my tea from the same place every morning for years and years, today they put a lemon slice in it. So (laughs) I'm pretty sure that anything is possible right now. (laughs) You know, I think it's Beyonce. I would blame Beyonce. But nobody gets that. It's lemonade. Nobody could get lemonade off their minds. No. Oh, dear you watched it? I did not watch it. But one I'm in America reading. in 2016, we don't need to actually watch things to know everything about them, do we? Well, right. I mean, I've read so many think pieces about it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> watch it. Who watches it? I just read about it. Um. So anyway, cool. I think moving forward, um, as we've done before, when Miriam and Marianne are both with, with us, we'll call Marianne Dr. Wren or Wren um, to distinguish their similar sounding names. <laughs> um, okay. So remember, as usual, that um, the poems themselves can be found on the Painted Bread Quarterly website at pbq.drexel.edu. And if you have any comments that you'd like to share with us, please do so on um, our Facebook event for this episode, which is episode seven. So uh, let's get rolling. We have two poems by a poet named Paul Nielsen. And the first one is called Coyote. Who would like to read? I'll read it. Um, And I think the poet's name is Paul Nelson. Oh, right. Not Nielsen. So Paul Nelson. And I am, well, I'll tell you why. Because is it coyote or coyote? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why. It's Paul Nelson. It's not coyote. Isn't it coyote? But can't we sound like we're gunslingers and say coyote? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry. I'm I'm really looking forward to reading these poems. Um, So here we go. Coyote by Paul Nelson. Last December, just beyond the windows where we stand with wine, she clawed for frozen apples in her new coat beneath the tree the children climbed. Just bread, we guessed. I wanted to caress her muzzle and ears, lower my face to her eyes, say something as if she were a dog, something fatuous and loving. You laughed because I said, I would take anything she offered, teeth or tongue. All right. Well, that's quite a moment. And for me, it doesn't get, I'm not, fully engrossed until that second stanza, which is everything, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not to start off negatively, but just be on the windows where we stand with wine gives me a big eye roll. (laughs) (laughs) I really, but that that last stanza is really great. I mean, anything she offered with her tongue is is a fantastic line. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. It really is. It really is. Um, I do math. What's the Matthew Arnold poem where they're standing by the window, looking out at ignorant armies clashing by night? Come by the window, come stand by the window. What's that poem? Oh, don't make me resort to Google. I'm going, I'm going don't in. Talk amongst yourselves. Don't <laughs> Talk what, what Dover irrelevance Beach. anyway. What's Dover the- Beach, Dover Beach. Dover Blessings. Beach. Who said it? Who said it? I, Miriam said it, but Google said it. Oh, Miriam. Well done, friend. But yeah, so it it Dover beaches me right in that first stanza, which is like, you know, stand me next to a window. And I'm thinking Matthew Arnold, right, especially with a glass of wine in my hand, looking out at at the horizon. Um, 
But anyway, so Miriam, what were you saying about the piece? I the the actually the wine didn't bother me. Um, I had a temporary like tense misunderstanding because I suppose that that's like where we always stand with wine or where we usually stand with wine. Mm. Oh because yeah. All of a sudden, then we're in past, and that that was just like a little. And I don't know if that's just my brain or if that is is an actual clunk in the poem. But I, I the image I thought was nice. I, the image um, did something. I think they always stand there with wine, which was why at that particular me. window. <laughs> Is that why you had the eye roll? Because that's like the window wine, the wine window, that's the, the wine, wine window, window. <laughs> where, where the they window? drink their window wine. <laughs> well, it sounds like they have a very nice view. I mean, you know, they have this tree with apples and children climbing. It's very idyllic. It is, but I, I have to say, I like. I really okay. I do like the way the poet is playing with sound in, in what seems like a sort of mundane setup, right? Where we stand with wine, she clawed for frozen apples in her new coat beneath the, cho- the tree the children climbed. And climbed is at the end of the fourth line and just so directly echoes wine, which is the middle of the second line. So there's a tightness to it, even though it's a sort of like, like almost like a, a place, like a, it's a, it's a conjure, it's like conjuring. It's like, pay attention, pay attention, here we go. And then the poem kicks in, the image kicks in in the second stanza. Mm-hmm. And the dominance of the W and uh, the K sounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, windows where we stand with wine, new, right? It's, it's got a, it's a nice, a nicely um, registered play with sound. When it says um, in the new coat just bred, does that mean that it's, it's like a baby coyote? Is this like a... It's, it's like a very small coyote. You know, that was a grammar, a grammar thing that I was wondering if anybody was going to, you know, make a snarky remark about the just bread we guessed actually comes after the children. But um, yeah, I think the new coyote is supposed to be a new coyote. Yeah. Right. And so the other thing was like reason. just bread was right because like just bread means conceived as opposed to just born. Yeah. No, I think the, I think the, yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about coyotes. I might be just showing off my ignorance of the animal kingdom, but do they get like a new coat for winter or is there some seasonal thing that's happening? Hmm. Hmm. Don't Google it, anybody. Um, last December in her new coat, it kind of would make sense. Wouldn't it be new if she's a baby, the coyote? Or if it's December, they might get new. They probably do. It probably thickens. Yeah, I mean, so I, I dogs do, yeah. <laughs> right? I have, I'm do. so glad that we're talking about that verb bread, though, because I'm with Jason. Like for a second, I was like, wait, does that mean she's newly born or like newly stopped? Right? Like yeah. to breed cattle, right? Means like you're you're inseminating cattle in order to have more calves, right? So the I don't know. Like does bre- I guess bread gets used that way? Like she's newly birthed. Yeah, I think I didn't. The way you guys are talking about bread, I I never thought of bread as just the um, conception. It's also intentional, right? It's not bread. Mm. Well, I, I was wondering if that was just brought up, or just, has she reached some kind of like point where she's wandering around? Like I I didn't I didn't think it was that she was at the very beginning of her life. Mm-hmm. I think the the bread coming after children and just before the coyote for me is a little confusing. And I, for me, the second 
stanza works so well without it, I don't really know why it's there. Because it doesn't, maybe it does add something that I'm not getting. But it seems like the real, the poem starts really humming with that second uh, stanza. And particularly because, well, I... because coyotes, what they, the way they capture their prey is they'll go into a neighborhood or go into an area with dogs and they'll play with the dogs or they'll pretend to be hurt and lure them into the woods and then rip them apart what? with their friends. Really? Yeah. What? So this is, um, oh, I'm from Florida. So, <laughs> so this is what the coyote's trying to do. I mean, he's just playing with the people to try to get them to come off into the woods. So if the title was Coyote would still know I wanted to caress her muzzle in the ears would mean the coyote. Yeah. Right? If we kept the title and got rid yeah. of the whole first hand. Yeah. I like that idea. We <laughs> well, should lure I... this poem into the woods and rip the first half. Um. <laughs> just, to, just to kind of um, go back to the first stanza with maybe a little bit less of a murderous instinct. I think that the, um, I, I kind of like the, the idea of being at the end of the year where the apples are frozen and there's there's some like transition thing happening. The children are hanging out in the same place that the coyote hangs out in and they're all being, I, I mean, there's there's some, I don't know, to me it's significant that we're, we're at a beginning and ending point um, and these young things or these frozen things are trying to figure out like how to move in this season. And I, I don't, the first stanza doesn't offend me that much. Hmm. Yeah. I, the first, I mean, the wine thing also kind of bothers me a little bit, but it doesn't really offend me, <laughs> but it doesn't do for me what the second stanza does. Mm -hmm. For me. Yeah, I don't know that it offends Kathy. That's a slightly strong word. What's that? I, offends oh. is such a strong word. Yeah. No, um, it's not yeah. offensive. Kathy, were you saying that the first, you just didn't like it, right? Right. I just think. Yeah, but Mir um, Miriam yeah. raised the offense, right? She she raised that as a yeah. possibility, right? Um, uh, I, you know, those of you who know me know that I, I have a thing, I have an aversion to affectations and feeling the poet, the authorial presence there thinking about thinking about how he looks. Do you know what I mean? And that's right. that's my issue with the wine. Is there's just something, you know, affected about that whole that whole little scene. And then we do have our clunks. We have the clunk that Marion had with where we stand with wine, which I did read Miriam as because we always stand. It's our wine window, right? <laughs> but then also the the just bread we guessed and this new code in December and is it a, pup, a baby coyote and all those questions. It just seems like really overly complicated to just set the scene, right? If the intent of that stanza is to give us the moment, right? We're tripping over it in a lot of ways, right? But man, I do want to get to that second stanza. Yeah, I mean, when the second stanza starts, if I totally ignore it, I'm right there anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With the, it doesn't matter. We know the person's in some sort of neighborhood, just because the tone of it and the and wanting to caress the muzzle and ears. I mean, it's clear that the coyote has come to that person and is pretending to be nice. <laughs> and I like that. I love 
It reminds me of, uh, I think I brought this up in the last podcast, but I think it was a Robin Black interview where she said when she, before she writes, she goes swimming in the ocean because she likes the idea of floating over dark water where anything could eat her. Oh. And so she then, her mind is, is sort of calibrated to the objective bluntness of the world. Wow. And I like this sort of tone. It's a similar kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just talked me into the first stanza. Oh, did I? Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, because now it's just like so much more of an innocuous first stanza. Like, here we are having our wine at our wine window. And when, lo, here comes a suspicious coyote <laughs> playing near our children. Are there the, are they uh, are they the speaker's children? I assume so. Yeah. The children. Well, we yeah. don't really know who the children are in time. Could have been the tree that right. the children used to climb, or something. Yeah, yeah. Or climbed once, or something. Yeah. Right. So I guess that's the that's the mood that it strikes for me. It's like all of these things are at such a distance, like such a recess, and and except for this, you know, coyote, um, picking up, you know, picking at the frozen apples, right? And the children once climbed the tree. It's frozen ground now, so it's you know, they're in that sort of, you know, sort of gray atmosphere but they're warm and tucked away and safe inside and they're contemplating this this scene and and i i you know tim i love your description of what coyotes do because it feels like like that's exactly what happens to the speaker right seduced into wanting to love this animal that will eat his face you know so yes my (laughs) brother-in-law records the coyotes um in florida about a block away when they lure animals back there. They start yiping about a ton ah. of them at a time and he'll, he'll record oh, it wow. on his iPhone. Oh my God. We need to put one of these on yeah. this podcast. Can yeah. you get him to yeah, send us I can, one? I can probably get it. I mean, <laughs> you do it all the time. You guys would have been on like an animal thing. Was it just episode six where we had the cats, Miriam? Or, or we thought maybe cats. We had a bloody stair railing and remember all that? <laughs> oh yeah. 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 <laughs> Right. Yeah. Marriage. <laughs> Yowling like, animals slash babies. <laughs> yeah. That was really disturbing. If you missed yes. it, uh, listen to episode the, the monsters issue. <laughs> it's yeah. gonna be gruesome. <laughs> and this is did we mention that this is for monsters as well? I don't think we did. Thank you for mentioning it. This oh, is that's an important monsters. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I feel like I've learned a ton about coyotes um, in this discussion, and I I really am uh, sort of moved by the work of this poem. So, all right, that sounds like a call to vote. Yeah, it is. Should I? I'm gonna. Can we yipe? Can we yipe like coyotes? Can we yipe <laughs> well, our vote? You can yipe all you well, want, but why don't you also <laughs> send a message to Ryan? <laughs> you do that, and we'll do our uh, our one, two, three up in here, up in Philly, right? So one, two, three, vote. What's the score, Ryan? Three, yes. Three, yes. So guess what? That is unanimous for Peter Nelson. Oh, 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 oh. 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 So <laughs> we have more coyotes. We have like. This one, the next one is called Coyotes, plural. So there's oh, like, it's like aliens. Yes. Like we have the yes. original. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, if we go back to themes for uh, print nine, we might consider animals. We get a lot of animals, right? Yeah. There aren't enough animals in literature. Well, no, there are. There's tons. What am I thinking? Animal studies is like a super burgeoning field. Yeah. In fact, I'll have you know, I just saw Yuna Chaudhry, who is, you know, a sort of heavy hitter in walk out of that conference on war and journalism. So just so you know, if we do something on animals, we'll just go get Una Trottery to send us some work. <laughs> Una Trottery is a heavy hitter in what? Animal, Animal. studies. Oh. Yeah, she, ba- she basically founded the field. Wow. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. That's crazy. That's a sign. Um, <laughs> all right, but who's going to read Coyotes? Can I read it? I'll read Coyotes. Absolutely. All right. Coyotes. In a shaft of brass light, down through spruce, a big chocolate male done for the year pads across moss, dissolves in shadow. The tattered blonde bitch stands in bright spring grass edging the woods. Hanks drag from her molting flanks, ears alert for mice and voles. Two pale kits dive after each other. Shorter ears and heavier bodied than western cartoons, coy dog, some say. Her heavy rotting tail drapes, eyes generous and frank. This morning, on the three legs, another bitch crabs across Nebraska's I-90 in a whiteout. Men standing down at truck stops, diesels thrumming and clacking in the lots. Shaky behind the slapping wipers, I barely see her hop south through the barbed wire onto stubbled acres of ice and drifting snow where men set traps to kill vermin that will freeze. Coil down on steel and chain, get skinned and nailed to a shed with others, or thaw come spring to feed the ravens. She chewed her own leg off. A 16-wheeler passes like a war. I draft in its wake as it shells the storm over and by me, watching for its taillights to blink. Muzzle flash, signals to follow in the blur. Even though the image of an animal trapped chews its own leg off is kind of a, kind of a worn image, I like it here because it seems like the coyote is aware of the previous two lines. I, maybe I'm mm. reading into it, but it just seems because coyotes are smart animals, and it seems like they they know how how awful it's going to get for them. Oh, oh, the the catalyst to chewing her leg off is because she knows she could be skinned and nailed to a shed. Yeah, right. Yeah, those images right up against each other like that make you think, yeah, I, I would chew my leg off too. Yeah. Right. When I was reading these to get ready for today, I actually preferred the uh, coyote to coyotes. And now I think I'm more moved by coyotes reading it out loud and kind of talking about it. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is? Well, I think that the, um, I think it's talking about coyotes. I think it's sort of thinking about them as, as smarter animals. I think when I was reading of coyotes as anything other than wilder dogs, and now I'm sort of thinking about coyotes as these kind of manipulative, vicious animals who, um, present themselves as wounded, but also are wounded. I'm, I'm more compelled. And it sounded, it, it felt really nice to read it. It was, it was, I liked the sound a lot of coyotes when I was reading it out loud. Mm-hmm. 
So I really love a 16-wheeler passive libel war. Um, when the next line I draft in its wake as it shelves the storm, what is what's the what is draft there? Oh, that's when you're driving behind because because it, there's a snowstorm, mm-hmm. and so it's it's like um, he's using the 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 sixteen wheeler is blocking the storm basically, right? And so he's in the space behind the sixteen wheeler where he can see because all he has to see is a 16 wheeler because it's blocking out the rest of the snow. So that's the drafting in the way. Yeah. And the draft is the air that's pulled behind the, behind the truck. Yeah. Right. But it's a 16 wheeler passes like a war. So they're past each other on the highway. So the wake of the wheeler, right. Has, has just shelved the storm over and by. Right. So I'm like, and it's funny watching for its taillights to blink, muzzle flash signals to follow in the blur. Like I, I, I was reading it like Jason was reading, right? That as, as if the driver is like riding behind the truck in order to catch the, the space, right? Available, like to sort of tailgate the truck. But if it's a 16 wheeler passes like a war, I draft in its wake as it shelves the storm over and by me. How does that work? Well, I, I think the 16 wheeler is passing the coyote. Like I almost wanted uh, that to be part of the previous stanza, and then this I to come in with the last sta- like yeah. you know I mean mm-hmm. I, now I'm just like editing ruthlessly, but I feel like if if that line was previous, it would be not only clearer, but I think that the entrance of the I might be more impactful. Yeah, you're right. You're actually yeah, that's great, and then it also gives it the space to see that. It's not like a truck passes and kicks snow over me, right? It's a 16-wheeler passes like a war right after she chewed her own leg off. Mm-hmm. Ends yeah. the comment, right? And then it's, I draft in its wake as it shelves the storm over and by me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That space would make that clear. It's also, I mean, I, I love the, the violence of, you know, she chewed her own leg off. And then the, the kind of idea that the the technology of this 16-wheeler presents a new violence, like a human violence that's connected to war. And I, I, I just think that the, the, those two violences being right next to each other would be great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really a beautiful ending again. You know, that's just that's just quite an image to hang there on the ending. What is the muzzle flash? I think that's, I, I love the way that that does double work, right? Like on one hand, you see muzzle and I was thinking it was like the dog's, like the coyote's muzzle, but it's muzzle flash, which takes you back up to the truck. If it passes like a war, then those taillights look like gun flashes, like the, the muzzle of a gun. Oh. And then signals to follow in the blur, right? So the taillights are blinking like muzzle flashes. So that's my take on it. I was also briefly, I, I was briefly wondering if draft was doing double work and if the, mm-hmm. if the poet or, you know, the speaker is kind of already thinking about how to describe this experience, even as he's following this teen wheeler. Like I, that, um, I, I don't know if I have any evidence for that, but. <laughs> well, see, and I saw the muzzle as the coyote's muzzle that he would get a glimpse of mm-hmm. it, just a muzzle flash. Right. Uh, as the taillights blink, that's he's going to ca- grab a, a flash of the muzzle of the coyote that's there. 
So that's mm-hmm. how I check them. But so it's terrific, I think, that we're having these multiple Yeah, so yeah, because um, meetings. I think that's great. So the taillights signal to follow in the blur, like the blinking taillights signal to follow in the blur, right? Which is goes back to this reading of him riding behind the car or the speaker riding behind the car, right? Or the truck or the truck rather, right? Mm-hmm. And then that muzzle flash is doing this d- wonderful double duty. You get the the coyote and the this image of violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm sort of with Jason on this one. When we um, decided to talk about these two, I thought, oh, definitely the first one. Second one, meh. And I'm not, and I think the meh was because of the sort of spread of the poem. The, I, I wasn't fully convinced of the, the line breaks, like the, where they were landing and what the emphasis was on the, like the sort of like the, the, like how the second lines were structured after, you know, a line break. And I think Miriam put her finger on why I was um, not feeling the ending as strongly as I do now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right. Should we vote? Should we vote? Yeah. So, yeah. You guys ready? Wait, wait, I have to call up the technology. All right, hold on a minute. Are, are, we, are we voting on the poem as it is? Are we going to ask for an edit or... Well, I didn't hear us talk about an edit, Miriam. What were you thinking? Oh, yeah. The, cutting away. The line, I think the line break she was talking about. What line break? Like the, so the final stanza, uh-huh. if we pull up a 16 wheeler passes like a war, so it's part of the previous stanza and begin the final stanza with I draft. I should mention this is not a deal breaker for me, but I just thought that um, it might be a, an interesting edit. Yeah, so a 16 wheeler would be part of the previous stanza. So one, two, three, four. It would be part of stanza four. And then the final right. stanza with start, stanza starts with I drake I draft in its wake. I think it's a nice edit. I think so too. Tim and I are both literally shrugging our shoulders. So I guess we're mm. saying we don't see that it does that much or it's not necessary. What are you saying, Tim? Yeah, I don't, I mean, but I don't really look at poems, I think, uh, in the same way as poets, <laughs> where for me, I just, I like both of those lines next to each other. So I don't quite feel like I have the authority to comment because I'm mostly focused on the narrative of the poem. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, can I ask you though? I think that's, you just put your finger on how I would describe the logic of the edit. Mm-hmm. So the way the, the, where the line sits in the final stanza actually right. scrambles the narrative for me. Like I actually can't tell what, what happens, right? Is it the car behind the truck or the car passing, like the truck passing the car, but moving it to the penultimate stanza and giving a little space actually makes it much clearer that the car is behind the truck. Right. It's just like a simple narrative move now. And I say that and I, and I turn this out to you guys for a question. If the scramble and confusion is productive for the poem, then let's leave it as it is. But if the clarity is better for the poem, I think we should leave that just move the line up the penultimate stanza. Um, so what do you think? Let me just add one little other comment. Not that we're looking for form, but we've got a four line stanza, then a nine line stanza, then a four, then an eight and a five. So if that line came up, it would make it four nine four nine four. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It would mm-hmm. make it more symmetrical. Not that that matters at all, but it, it is kind of. Funny. I think it does. I, I like. I like. You like the symmetry. Mm-hmm. I do. 
Okay. All right, then. Let's vote and assume that we will ask for that edit. Right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, text Ryan and in the studio, we're going to say one, two, three, vote. And from San Francisco, New York, and Abu Dhabi, <laughs> the vote is three yes. Three yes. So go Coyotes. Did it again, right. unanimous, twice in a row. That is amazing. Go Team Coyote. Go Team Coyote. Coyote and Coyotes. That's kind of funny and wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so two for Monsters, which is wonderful. And um, today, rather than discuss uh, more poems, we're to discuss an issue that we kind of touched on before in a different way, but it all has to do with um, monetizing publishing or... I don't, I don't know. I'm thinking about, um, Tim, you're the one who brought to our attention that, um, on the different, um, independent campaigns like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, there are people that are looking for funding for their books. And, um, I guess what I'm referring to in the past that we talked about is, um, magazines that are asking for money to respond to more quickly to you and money. If you have enough money, you can get people to respond to you faster. You can get critiques from editors. Mm -hmm. um, so now here are people without money asking the world to just fund their book projects. And uh, what, what were you thinking about, about this issue, Tim, when you first saw it? Well, I started researching um, when I was digging around through journals for looking for poets that I liked. Sometimes I'll do that and I'll email them and ask to send you poems or something like that. And I want to find out a little more about them. So I found some poets when I Googled their name had Kickstarter projects. Wow. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was odd because I really liked their work. And if it was out there, I would probably buy it. Mm -hmm. And if I was working for a small press, I'd probably try to hunt them down and try to get them to send me a manuscript before they published with somebody else. And I feel like it left a kind of a sour taste in my mouth when I saw it. And I feel like, I mean, I, and I started writing down some notes at night and ended up with this sort of like messy pile of Jerry Maguire <laughs> <laughs> manifesto types of pages. Hey, can we publish that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, um, can you read some of that for uh, us? No. You know what? I'll, 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 there's a, there's a quote from Steve Albini that I really liked. Does everyone know Steve Albini? He's a producer. He's a record producer for punk rock bands in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I can't find it here. But basically, to paraphrase what he said, he said, if, you, if you're not smart enough to find out a way to have your work be self-sufficient, then, um, then you're an idiot. I mean, he basically, he, he just, he just, wow. Steve, Steve Albini is great because he just says what's on his mind and he just throws it out there. And then you look at it and you think, well, I, I guess I have to think about that, you know, I've before. And, and, um, Marion, there's another t-shirt. Sorry. And, and I was thinking, and I, so I was thinking about that all, you know, this morning and, and last night and. I feel like part of one of the thing, some of the things that we value about people who have published books is that they have created a narrative or a stack of poems that represent enough about the human condition that somebody else will back them. 
will will risk their money yeah. and their time to support your idea and you've risked your time and your in in your life and hours of your life um, and arranged your life to put this manuscript together. So each, each side is taking this great risk. And part of what we I value about writers is that they've risked, they've, they've done this risk and there's no guarantee that the risk is going to pay off. And that's part of what's kind of amazing about writers that they're just, they're going to do it anyway. Mm. And to have people fund it makes it more about the writer and their experience of hugging their book than, <laughs> than them giving us something to think about. When you think about great shorts, I mean, the short stories that have moved me tremendously, tre- tremendously in my life, like Amy Hempel's In the Cemetery, where Al Jolson is buried, tons of Flannery mm-hmm. O'Connor stories, Tobias Wolf stories that have just stuck and yeah. changed the way I live. That is what it's about. And, and that's what it's about when you write a story is you want to nail something in a way where you're going to change the trajectory of somebody's life or even their week or their moment or so right. you're affect right. them. Yeah. And it's not about whether you can hold it up and tap dance. I mean, you know, yeah. whether it's not about your experience. And that's, I think, one of the struggles of, of writing is when you change over from where it's about you to where it's about your audience and that relationship. And to me, Kickstarter pollutes that experience. Mm. But I don't want to say Kickstarter pollutes every experience because I'm not sure. I I think in some other uh, forms and genres, it seems like it's okay because when when that type of writing isn't about the same experience as literary fiction or poetry. Mm -hmm. Well, wait, Tim, can I, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Like, I actually don't quite see the link between the platform and the pollution of the experience, right? Because, you know, um, crowdfunding is, is, has really grown in popularity in the last, like what, like, you know, six years say for journalism, like it, it, you know, I think the Pew uh, fund is reporting like uh, that, you know, there's quite a bit of, of, of money now, like $2 million or something that goes to crowdfunded journalism, which was so not what's done like, you know, 10 or six years ago, even like in that, in that window. And for journalism, they take this approach of like, it actually like frees journalism from the marketplace. It, it allows people to do slow journalism, right? It's, it's a, it's another alternative to like the, the media ownership model that's in place that does impact journalism. Right. So thinking about like crowdsourced, funding for the arts. I talk to me a little bit more about that well, and why that pollutes the, makes more sense because mm. if you're a journalist, you still have to stick to the code of journalistic ethics or, or whatnot. You have to have sources and you have to have fact checking and it's not, and I think mm-hmm. journalism isn't automatically about the writer. Um, so for me that the, the, the quality of, the product they mm-hmm. put out polices itself. Where with fiction, right, so, what's that? I'm sorry. So with, with something like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, it's like the lack of the editorial presence, like the lack of the, the mechanism of the gatekeeping function of the editor. Is that part of what's, what's lacking in your... For, for fiction, for me, yeah. 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 So, but for <laughs> journalism, a good, I, good journalism is, yeah. is self-policing. 
in my I'm opinion. sorry. I'm t- just talking. You now. go. Sorry. <laughs> it's a delay. sorry. Uh-huh. Um, I, I actually, um, you know, there are good projects and there are bad projects and there are people who um, represent themselves in a way that is uh, distracting from their work and people who are really just trying to get paid for their intellectual labor. And um, I, I think that, you know, we can talk about the ways in which self-publishing has changed because of Kickstarter and these various technologies, but there's actually a very rich history of self-publishing in, you know, literary production. And it's a history that I, I think is, I'm actually quite grateful for. Like if, if, you know, if Jane Austen didn't pay for the publication of Sense and Sensibility, if Virginia Woolf didn't start a press, um, it, it's especially, and of course I'm naming women in particular because I associate it with an opportunity for sometimes um, less represented voices or marginalized voices to really, you know, get their feet under them and get people to see their work. And, you know, I think there's something just as romantic when you talk about risk-taking about a whole bunch of people, some of whom you know and some of whom have just read your Kickstarter page, deciding that they want to risk their hard-earned money on your work. I think that, that is a, that's a different avenue of romanticizing the role of a writer and a reader that, it's, you know, it's interesting. it doesn't bother me. Does it obligate you as an artist to your audience in any way, though? Uh, that's well, really I think a that you're question. always... Yeah, I, but I think that if you if you're trying to publish to make money, whether you're doing that through an editor and a publishing house that's established or you're doing it through your Kickstarter, then you are indeed obligated to your audience. If you're trying to kind of preserve a particular sense of your artistic, you know, uh, vision, regardless of your readers, then it doesn't obligate you. But I, I think that the, the thing here is it's, it's a new tool for a, an age old thing. Right, right. So uh, there's something out there, by the way, called Patreon.com or Patreon, and it's crowdfunding um, for artists and creators. So if you're like a blogger or a YouTuber or a, a you know a cartoonist, Patreon is really like set up for you to make um, connections with potential funders and crowdsource your work. And that, Kathy, is the one that reminds me of what you just said, which is. Like, does it obligate you to your, your funders, right? Mm-hmm. And Patreon recommends things like, you know, having a special, like, G-chat with your funders as um, part of the donation package. So if they donate X, they get to have a conversation with the artist or, you know, or they're, they're commenting on the, um, on, on the work as it proceeds. So it, it does open lines of communication and there's a little bit of, like, um, obligation like, like perks involved with yeah. the donation i think um but so i would i would encourage everybody to, to check out patreon it's an interesting um version of this specifically set aside for for artists and creative people yeah we'll put a link to that on our pages i mean there have been a couple of um very high profile authors who started off in self-publishing and vanity presses and basically made enough money and decided to move to presses because of what you get from a press, right? So if you're going to sign a producer, they have this entire machinery where they, you know, they copy edit and they have book designers and they have a network of bookstores and they have a network of book clubs and they know how to do publicity and they know how to place reviews. And I mean, I was, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, in the nineties, if you were sort of being trained as a poet, um, you were not trained to be entrepreneurial at all. And in fact, being entrepreneurial was going to 
isolate you from what you wanted, right? Because if you're self-publishing or if you're doing a vanity press, um, you know, then you're not eligible for the grants. You're not eligible for fellowships. Um, the entire apparatus of support that existed for people who were writing poetry and fiction um, had really kind of insisted on people kind of not being entrepreneurial. And yeah. now that there is this entrepreneur, and so I didn't really encounter it until I started meeting visual artists at residencies and they were like super entrepreneurial. And I was kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. But oh, but we can't really do that over here because mm-hmm. like, that's just not how we roll. Um, and I don't know, like, I mean, I, I met with a student the other day, my chair brought a student to my office and she had written, it was like, oh, she's written two books. And I was like, okay, so let's look at the books. And she, she'd self-published them. And, um, you know, she'd paid a lot of money. She'd paid like a thousand, overall, she had paid like over a thousand dollars for these mm-hmm. two books. And, you know, and she's a 20 year old student. Um, but she'd also sold $800 worth of them. And I was kind of impressed. I was like, all right, like, I and mean, if you can kind of keep that spirit, you know, I mean, after, after our conversation where I was kind of talking about what you want from a book and how you want the book to be distributed and how you want to find a readership and all these sorts of things, you know, she really kind of felt like this wasn't um, a choice that she should have made. And, you know, and I, I kind of said, like, you know, if you like the books and it was worth it to you, you know, maybe you don't make that same decision the next time. But I don't know. I mean, in terms of like actually crowdfunding, like like uh, Miriam is saying, everyone's superhero, Walt Whitman. Yep. Not <laughs> his own books. He wrote reviews of his own books <laughs> and then wrote review, wrote negative reviews of his own books under pseudonyms. So he could respond to the negative reviews <laughs> under other pseudonyms. So, you know, I, I just thought like a friend of mine just posted a poem on Facebook where she was like, you know, screw it. I don't, you know, yeah, I could, I could send this to a journal and I could get this published, but I can do this right now. So here goes. Um, and you know, I, and that's nothing I would ever do, but um, she's pretty popular. And, and she also, you know, she has a very loyal press. Um, and in fact, I was just, as I'm in San Francisco, I saw her book um, on the table at the bookstore that I wandered into last night. So she's doing okay. Yeah, I've known people who have who've self-published and then moved to presses too. And I don't, you know, I don't feel like, uh, I don't feel like I hold their past self-publishing against them. But I feel that's a good direction. I've, but yeah. to me, the editorial wall is, is important. And I, I mean, it's mysterious and it's difficult. And of course, we hate it probably a lot more than we like it, but I I feel like when you do get past it, um, I think it's very gratifying and you understand it more. And, and after reading it in the magazine, I understand a lot more about the function of the editorial wall. And, and it's not just, you know, some people yeah. saying no to everything and publishing their friends. It's people talking about poems line by line and looking how it look at how images match up together. And, and when I get rejections now, I was talking to my class yesterday about this, you know, I don't, I don't mind getting the rejection that says, sorry, this isn't right for us, but we really enjoyed these characters, blah, blah, blah. Please send us more work because then I know maybe, uh, maybe three out of seven liked it. And now I have to find a room (laughs) where five out of seven liked it. And I get to know, I, I have gotten to know a lot more journals and what the potential audiences are and. It's a long, slow process that I find to be fascinating and useful 
and and really helps me with my own work when I'm in the whole grinding it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand the temptation of wanting to get a book published and the frustration of of like when we were talking with the agent last week in Kathy's class, she showed us a whole list of publishers who said we really liked it, but it's not right for us at this at the time. Mm-hmm. And the publishers really did like it, but it mm-hmm. really wasn't the right time. And I think that's a problem with with the literary landscape as well. Right. Of just of of the big presses. So um, much niche. Yeah, stuff. and and the and the the anti competitive aspect of corporate publishing. Right. And I think we veered this conversation right into self-publishing and where we started. Kickstarter and Indiegogo are different because you're asking other mm-hmm. people to help you self-publish, right? And so, right. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's many, many choices to be made. You you know. I did, did you read the piece about Tyler, uh, not Gregson, in The Times? Mm-hmm. Um, he's, an, he's one of the Instagram poets. Mm-mm. Uh, and so he built a follow. He has a, he has 560,000 followers on Instagram. Wow. And his book of poetry sold 120,000 copies. Mm-hmm. Um, the Times article puts it in the context of uh, Louise Glick's last collection sold 20,000 copies. <laughs> right. Uh, and I don't, I mean, he's not on Indiegogo. Um, he's not, I mean, you know, he went on Instagram and built a followership that way. And now is kind of a best-selling author. Um, but I don't know that that's that different from kind of an Indiegogo from like going to, I think you know, it is. Like- I think it's grossly different. He had to grow <laughs> his platform and grow his audience by his work. Indiegogo is just saying, give me money. It's very well, different. But I think that there's lots of different um, ways you could kind of post that on Indiegogo. And we're talking about self-publishing instances in history, but those writers did go to their friends or family who were people they knew and ask them for money. So, I mean, I, not to totally flatten out the difference in technology, but it really is the same thing. It's like, you know, I have this, this piece of work for whatever reason that's not getting picked up and can you help me kind of bring it to the world? I, I don't, I, I think that that makes sense for some writers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I wonder, you know, like, is there a substantive difference between sending out an email blast to all of your friends saying, Hey, my book just came out on red hen, please buy it. And an Indiegogo campaign saying, Hey, I have this book, please make it happen. You know, you're asking for what the same amount of money, right? You're asking for the same exchange. Well, think- and like, Here's my book for your cash. There's a lot of, market differences in the example you just gave. I mean, if, if a book is out from Redhead Press, then it already addressed the editorial concerns that Tim was talking about. If you, if you have it up on Indiegogo, there's, then that's you. And so really is that in terms of like the curatorial process? Of right, having right. Of, Which was what okay. Tim was talking but about, the curatorial you know what? process. I'm, I just happen to be like poking through Indiegogo and there's, I'm looking at like one campaign that's, um, uh, for American bystander number two for the after party. Right. And it's a comedy quarterly and they made like 40,000 or 36,000 us dollars, um, for time to bring back the American bystander to print comedy quarterly in case you missed it. And I'm, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm like clicking through and talking to you guys wondering about how using Indiegogo as a marketing campaign. So let's say Jason's book, which is out on red hen press. If he says, huh, I don't want to like, you know, ask Red Hen to put me on a campaign tour, right? A bus tour across the U.S. 
but I do want to buy a bus for my own tour. I'm going to go to Indiegogo and, and do a campaign to get my psychedelic bus, right? Like I do, I, maybe that's the, maybe that's the future of the funk that we start thinking about Indiegogo for developing marketing campaigns for our art, not only to support the art, but to market it. I mean, I would advise anyone against it. I mean, if anyone came to my office and said, you know, like I'm, I have this book of poems and I'm thinking about going to Indiegogo to get it published, I would say you're not going to get what you want because the only people who are going to be aware of it are going to be the people who buy it or the people, right. the people right. you know directly and kind of. And right. so part of what a press does is it builds you a larger audience. That, that what we love about a press um, beyond kind of a curatorial impulse and, you know, and particularly, you know, presses that have really beautiful personalities like Wave Press, um, where you kind of have the sense of what's happening. You know, they're, they're sort of curating a really beautiful list. Um, it, it, it finds you a readership that you wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And an Indiegogo campaign can really only keep the people who already know who you are in your loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it really is like a cash transaction too. It gets you cash to do the work, right. To do the project. Whereas something like publication with wave um, or, you know, a prestige press gets you cultural capital and symbolic capital, not necessarily economic capital, although that sometimes happens. Right. So getting a line on your CV that your book is out with FSG is going to impact your career more directly. Right. right. Um, than than scoring you know ten thousand dollars on Indiegogo. You know what, Marion? Right? I think you've, you've you've come up with the perfect idea though. Why not get your book from your prestigious press and then get your psychedelic van from Indiegogo? Right? Psychedelic van. I'm all yes. about it. And then this you have another Kickstarter for campaign <laughs> for the Partridge Family band that you hire to sing songs about We're your book. Take this podcast that, on like, the road. Perfect. In a psychedelic van, <laughs> anything is possible. So, are you, are you going to put right? up the, the campaign to get the PBQ van? It's already yeah. done. That's this Hell summer. Yes. That's July, guys. It's happening. <laughs> That's the month of July. The yep. <laughs> um, listen, we we should wrap yeah. up. So, we would love to know what everyone else thinks about all of these ideas. Um, please let us know on our Facebook page. This is episode seven. Um, thank you for your patience. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our um, uh, engineer for today, Ryan McDonald. And thank you, Thanks, Sarah Aikett, for in here furiously thank taking you. notes. I can't wait to see these notes on this particular podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks for being here, San Francisco, New York, and Abu Dhabi. Um, sign up for our email list. If if you're in the area, go visit our website. If you send us a self-addressed stamped envelope, we will send you a really cool PBQ podcast Lush Pile sticker. So keep reading. Thank you. This podcast is produced through a joint venture of Drexel University's Office of Information, Resources, and Technology and the Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. This podcast is the property of Painted Bride Quarterly Magazine. All rights reserved.